You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Good morning, church family. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to make your way to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have some on that back table right back there. Feel free to get up and grab one. If you are a young person with us this morning and you haven't grabbed one of the worship packets that's put together, we would encourage you to get one of those. And that allows you to to follow along in our sermon and this morning, our text is Luke chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 34, or through 35, sorry. Now, before I read our text, let, let me set up our passage by rehearsing the events that have taken place so far in chapter 7. As Bob rehearsed at the beginning of our service last week, we we. we heard about this wonderful miracle Jesus did in Nain. But before that, we were informed in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, that after Jesus preached this incredible sermon on discipleship, the sermon in chapter 6 that we spent four weeks reflecting on, we're told that Jesus traveled to Capernaum. And there he was met by some Jewish elders who were sent there by a Roman centurion who had a servant who was near death, and they had come to implore Jesus on behalf of this Roman centurion, would you heal my servant? And Jesus healed his servant, but he didn't do it because this this servant was worthy. He didn't even do it because or, or because the centurion was worthy. He didn't even do it because this servant needed healing. He did it in light of the faith of the centurion. And as you can imagine, This caused quite a stir, and a great crowd was added to the crowd already. And this large crowd then follows Jesus on his way to the next town. And the next town he arrives at is called Nain. And as Barbara Hurst at the beginning of the service, when Jesus gets to the gates of this town, there comes a funeral procession of a widow bearing her only son. And Jesus, out of his compassion, brings this son back to life. And at the end of this story, Luke tells us what occurred after this miraculous event occurred. Verse 17 of chapter 7, Luke writes, And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now this brings us to our text this morning and the surprising turn of events that transpire next. Listen to verses 18 and 19 of our text this morning. And church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? 
I would guess that's probably not what you expected to hear coming from John. John, out of all people, was questioning whether Jesus was the one who was to come. Think about it. John, the prophet sent by God whose birth was announced by an angel, whose birth was a miracle, whose birth garnered much attention, especially after his father, Zechariah, who was mute at, at John's birth, now can open up his mouth. And the first thing he does is he prophesies about the role of his son. If you remember the first three chapters of Luke's gospel, you can't talk about Jesus without talking about John. They're like peanut butter and jelly. They go together. We hear about John's story. We hear about Jesus' story. We hear about John. We hear about Jesus. They go together. This is the same John. We read about in chapter 3, who faithfully and boldly preaches a message of repentance and baptizes people to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. Yes, that John asked this question of Jesus. Are you the one to come? Or shall we look for another? Church, today we're going to reflect on what causes faithful, God-fearing people like John and like us to at times question who Jesus is? And what do we do when those questions arise? And we're also going to discover what causes people to reject Jesus even though he has demonstrated that he is who he says he is. So that brings us now to our first point, verses 20 through 23, questioning Jesus's identity. Let's return now to our text. In verse 18, we, we are told that John received reports about the miracles Jesus was performing and about the large crowds that were following him. And, and that raised an important question in John's mind, a question no one else could answer but Jesus himself. So John sends two of his disciples to Jesus to get an answer to this perplexing question. And the question that John asked Jesus to answer has profound implications for us, not only as it did for John. Here's the question John asked. Are you the one who is to come? The key word is there is the word come. Are you the one who's promised? Essentially, John is asking Jesus if he is the Messiah. Now, before we listen in to the response of Jesus that he gives to John, we, we first must take a few minutes to Understand, why, why is John asking this question to begin with? What caused John, out of all people, to have this crisis of faith that he would even dare question the identity of Jesus, especially at the height of his ministry? Think about what's going on with Jesus right now. His fame has spread everybody's talking about him. And John gets the reports and doesn't go, okay, that's great. He says, 
You too, come here. Find Jesus and ask him, have I missed something? Are you the one who is to come? Or am I to look for another? What could have caused John to respond that way? Well, there are several things. Here's the first one. John's circumstances. If you go back to chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, Luke tells us this after telling us about John's ministry, beginning in verse 18. It says, so with many exhortations, he being John preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Think about John being in prison right now. That's why he sent these two messengers. Because John is locked up for doing what? For calling someone in power to repent. John, John wasn't inconsistent with his message. John just didn't call the commoner to, to repent. He, he, he called Herod, who was committing adultery and all other kinds of sins. And guess where it landed him? It landed him in prison. And yet, while all the while, while he's in prison, Jesus is gaining popularity as the friend of sinners. John is calling sinners to repent, and he gets thrown in prison. Jesus is gaining popularity as the friend of sinners. And we must also consider the message that John preached. Listen once again to the way Luke describes John's ministry and message back in chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then skipping down to verses 15 through 17, we read... As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. According to John, when the Messiah came, those who turned to Jesus and trusted in him would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and those who rejected him would experience judgment. And that doesn't appear to be taking place. People aren't being baptized with the Holy Spirit and those who are rejecting Jesus aren't experiencing judgment. There's miracles. Great. But what does that have to do with the message that John's been proclaiming? 
See, this, this message that John is proclaiming doesn't appear to be taking place. The ministry of, of, of Jesus up to this point is not as John had expected. And therefore, he's wondering, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah? Now, the question by John, this question reveals, I believe, the longing of his heart. Here's what John wanted. John wanted certainty. He wanted certainty regarding the identity of Jesus. And what John wanted is the same thing Luke wanted for his reader. If we go all the way back to the beginning, to the preface, if you recall, Luke begins this gospel with the preface. The first four verses, Luke tells us, all the other gospel writers don't do this, a preface is where the author, before he begins his story, says, here's why I'm writing, here's some things I want you to know. And Luke tells us in verse 4, the reason he wrote all this down, the longest book in the entire New Testament. Why did he painstakingly write all this down? He tells us that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. See, the, the desire of John's heart was that he would have certainty regarding the identity of Jesus. And what John wanted is the exact same thing Luke Wanted. He wants anyone who reads this gospel account to find certainty. Now, why, why, why would that be his aim? Why do we need certainty? Here's why. Because anyone taking an honest look at Jesus will wrestle with questions about his identity and his ministry. Everyone here at some point, has wrestled. And in the future, you will wrestle with questions about Jesus. And God has given us this precious book that tells us about Jesus so that we can have certainty. Now, if John's question to Jesus was motivated by a desire for certainty, then we should expect that the answer Jesus gives to John will provide that certainty. So let's listen in to Jesus' response now, beginning in verse 20 through 22. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Do you get what just happened? While they're there, 
seeking to get an answer from Jesus. Jesus is doing all of these miracles and Jesus answers their question about whether he's the one who is to come by saying to them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. Verse 22. And I believe that phrase, what you've seen and heard, is a critical statement for us to understand what's happening here. I don't think Jesus is just saying, go tell John what you've seen and heard as far as go tell him about the miracles you've seen and go tell him about the messages I've preached. I think these two, these two words, seen and heard, go together. I, I believe they communicate a single truth about the messianic identity of Jesus. How so? Well, this phrase, what you've seen and heard, it points to Jesus' identity. And his words that he speaks after doing these things and drawing attention to them, he says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. We can think Jesus is saying, hey, go back to John. He wants certainty. Tell him, here's some evidence. Well, John's already had evidence. He's not questioning, can Jesus do miracles? So what's going on here? And how is this providing certainty for John? And how does it provide certainty for us? In essence, what Jesus is doing here is he was pointing to six things in his words. When he mentions, tell John these things that have happened, Here's what the original audience would have heard. Six things Jesus has done which fulfilled Old Testament promises, prophecy, and messianic expectations all from the book of Isaiah. So he's not just saying, hey, if he's not sure I'm the Messiah, tell him about all the miracles I've done. No, he points to all that he's done and he says, Now, tell him this, and he quotes those six things, which is in essence Jesus saying, tell John that I am the one that the book of Isaiah and all the other prophets pointed to. Time does not permit us to look at all these, but you can go back and look at Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. Remember, that's the passage Jesus quoted back in Luke 4 when it's time for him to say to his home crowd who he is and he reveals his ministry. What does he do? He goes back to Isaiah. He reads this, this, this prophecy and then he sits down and says, today it's been fulfilled. And that's what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus was communicating to John and now to us is this. In order to understand the identity of Jesus, you must not remove Jesus from the context of Scripture. We must not remove Jesus from the story of Scripture. Jesus didn't just come down from heaven as the, 
As God's first revelation, there has been this entire unfolding of revelation through, through the people of Israel. There's been covenants. There's been laws given. There, there's been God visiting his people in miraculous ways. There's been the exodus. There's been exile. There's been all of those things. There, there are priests and sacrificial systems. And Jesus fits in with all of that. Think about Jesus' response at the very end of Luke's gospel. Do you remember what happens on the road to Emmaus? And these two men meet him after he's risen from the dead and they have no idea that it's him. And what does he do to reveal himself to them? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Think about what Jesus just did. He has risen from the dead and he encounters these two guys that have no idea who he is. You know what he could have done? He could have said, you don't know who I am? Let me do a miracle for you. He doesn't. He said, let's go back to Genesis. And I'm going to work our way through the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you that everything there points to me. That's so instructive for us. Here's what this means as we consider the identity of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God that are recorded in Scripture. Therefore, listen, when we evaluate Jesus, we must do so according to the storyline of Scripture. See, when we wrestle with who is Jesus, here's what we can't do. We can't just turn on logic. Well, how could he be 100% God and 100% man? That doesn't make sense. Well, here's what I think Jesus would be like. The only way we can accurately know Jesus is in the context of Scripture. We must go back to the place where Jesus is clearly revealed. He's a part of a grand story and we must evaluate him in light of this story and often people don't do that often when we wrestle with questions about jesus we leave the story of scripture and we evaluate jesus in some other way if i could give you an example of maybe kind of what we're tempted to do think about the difference a game would have a american football game would take if the referees calling the game were actually British football referees. You realize what we call football is actually all over the world called soccer. But they share the same name. And imagine that we took some British soccer football referees and asked them, call this game American football. They, they wouldn't call it the same, would they? Well, both involve the ball, both involve two teams, both of them have the same name, but they play by different rules. And if we're going to evaluate who Jesus is, we must make sure we're bringing him to Holy Scripture and saying, is everything about Jesus consistent with everything Scripture says he should be? And listen, when we fail to do this, Jesus becomes a stumbling block to us. Why do I say that? Because of verse 23. This is John, Jesus' last words to John that he sends to his messengers. 
And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. The grammar of that sentence implies that Jesus was directing that to John. John, blessed are you if I don't meet all your criteria, but you're not offended by me. Friends, we too are blessed when we don't shrink back in our confidence regarding Jesus. And yet, that is so easy to do. It is so easy to do because of our simple and sinful perceptions. We can create in our minds the Jesus that is acceptable to us. And on top of that, we live in a culture that has no love for the Jesus that's revealed in Holy Scripture. Oh, a lot of people like a cultural Jesus, but not the Jesus that's revealed in the Bible. And we can be tempted to compromise our view of him when the true Jesus doesn't fit the mold of the cultural Jesus. Now, after Jesus responds to these two messengers, they go on their way. Back to John, and we read what Jesus does next. Verses 24 through 30, clarifying the identity of John, point two. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's court. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, what's happening here? Well, it appears that these two messengers from John most likely asked Jesus this question in a public context for the crowds to hear. So I believe Jesus felt it necessary to address the identity of John. And by doing so, he clarifies John's identity, and in turn, he clarifies his identity, and in turn, he clarifies the identity of his disciples. See, Jesus wanted the crowd to know that even though John may be in prison asking this hard question about my identity, this does not negate his role And it does not change the words he spoke about me. See, John, according to Jesus, was the greatest prophet there ever was. He's the greatest prophet there ever was. Greater than Moses. Greater than Isaiah. Greater than Elijah and Elisha. And Jesus asked the people there, 
the crowds. Why did you go out to see him? Did you notice that three times in verses 24, 25, and 26? He asked them this question. Why did you go out to see John? And that statement implies that many people had encountered John and had great admiration for John and were even responsive to his message. And so the question Jesus is asking him is why? Why did you go see this guy? Because of his personality? No. Nothing about this guy made you go, yeah, we want to go see him. Was it his style? What is, it, what, what is it about this guy that made so many people flock out to this obscure place to hear from this man? Why? It was due to the fact that people recognized him as a prophet. But not just any prophet. He was the greatest prophet because he was given the privilege of announcing the coming of the Messiah. That's what it means in verse 27 when Luke and G, well, Jesus then quotes from prophecy to say that one day when the Messiah comes, God will prepare the coming of the Messiah by sending a prophet. See, John was great because of the greatness of the one he pointed to. And John's ministry, among many other things, authenticated the ministry and identity of Jesus. That's the point Jesus is making. In case the crowd had any question because they heard what John had asked, well, maybe he's not legit. Jesus says, oh, Everything he said was true. There has never been a greater prophet. Why? Because he spoke and pointed to me. He spoke of me. He pointed to me. And yet, Jesus says those who have no special status but belong to the kingdom of God because of their faith in Jesus is greater than John. Verse 28. So he highlights the the greatness of John. But he says, but listen, if you are the least in my kingdom, you are greater than John. Why would Jesus say that? Because what did John not live to see? He didn't get to see the full story. Jesus dying on a cross and rising from the grave. And we do. What certainty would that have given John had he gotten to see those things? But Luke, in verses 29 through 30, he inserts a parenthetical comment by telling us how most of those in the crowd responded to what Jesus said about John. Let me read verses 29 through 30. Luke tells us when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Those who agreed with Jesus according to Luke those who agreed with what Jesus said about John's ministry, they were the very ones who had already been baptized 
by John. And by doing so, they confirmed the message that John had proclaimed. Here, here's, here's what John had proclaimed. And they're, they're, they're going out and being baptized by John, confirmed his message. Here's the message. God acted righteously when he called sinners to repentance, and then he pardoned them by faith. That's the message John was preaching. John was preaching a message about sinners needing repentance and about a pardoning that comes by faith. And by those who responded by going to John, they, they, con- they confirmed that God was right in doing that. See, John's ministry pointed them to their greatest need. Their greatest need was for a savior. And that's what John's ministry was doing. It was pointing them to this great need. And it should come as no surprise at this point in Luke's gospel that that Luke tells us the religious leaders like the Pharisees and the lawyers, they had refused to be baptized. And that day when Jesus says all these things about John, they reject it. That message once again. It should come as no surprise up to this point. They have rejected the plan of God. They rejected the fact that Jesus is God. And therefore, they have rejected the salvation that comes from God. But why? Why why would these religious leaders not respond to God's plan? Here's why. Because they were offended by the message that they were sinners in need of grace. That's why the religious leaders saw all this, heard all this, and didn't say, we're on board. Because at the end of the day, they were offended by the message that they were sinners in need of grace. And that brings us to our final point, receiving the message of the gospel, verses 31 through 35. Consider this. Even though the ministries of Jesus and John had very different emphasis and therefore looked differently. Don't forget this. Both of them preached the same message. Though their ministries looked different, they preached the same message. They preached the bad news that we are sinners who deserve God's judgment because of our rebellion against God. And they both preach the good news that God in Christ forgives undeserving sinners. Both of them. Ministries look different. Message the same. They preach the bad news. And then they preach the good news. Sadly, many in Jesus' day did not find this message appealing. And that's why Jesus then says what he does next in verses 31 and 32. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Jesus being so perceptive sees the response of the crowd, especially those of the religious leaders who reject once again 
the message. And Jesus compares his generation to a group of children in the marketplace singing a familiar song to one another. Little side note, I just, I, I love how Jesus must have observed these children in the marketplace that he even recalls the song they sang to one another. So what, what is this all about, this illustration that these this, his generation is like children sitting in the marketplace singing this song together. Well, I think commentator Philip Ryken explains it well. This is not something that we would probably see in our day, so we have to go back into their context and their culture. And Phil Ryken writes this, In those days, boys and girls loved to play weddings and funerals. These were common events. And it's not surprising that children imitated the rituals they saw in the streets of their city. Sometimes they played weddings dancing around the boy and the girl, pretending to be the bride and the groom. Sometimes they played funerals, singing sad songs and pretending to cry. But some children were bored with it all. They didn't want to play weddings or funerals. In fact, they didn't want to play anything. So the other children would sing a song of an old taunt from the Jewish playground, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sing a, a dirge, and you did not weep. See, the Pharisees and those who rejected Jesus were like those fickle children who did not want to participate. Now, why would Jesus use this very specific illustration from children in the marketplace to communicate a spiritual truth about those in his generation? because it best illustrated people's response to him and to John. Did you hear what he says next? In, or listen to what he says next in verse 33. He says, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. See, John has a serious and more somber ministry. If we compare John's ministry to music, he, he's like funeral music. And people hear John, and you know what they say? He's too extreme in his appearance. He's too extreme in his practices. He's too extreme in his message. So you know what they do? They say, that guy must have a demon. So you would think that people would have welcomed the ministry of Jesus, who was the opposite, who loved to eat meals with sinners. But they didn't. Verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they look at Jesus and the fact that Jesus liked to eat and drink and the fact that Jesus was known for being a friend of sinners, that calls many in his day to call him a glutton and a drunkard. Now, that wouldn't be a nice thing for someone to say to you, but in that context, that would have been punishable if that was true of Jesus. So they see John, who's somber, and they say, that guy's got a demon. Now look at Jesus, who's celebratory. And they say, man, that, that guy's not serious. I think he's drunk. Do you see what those in Jesus' culture were like? They're like fickle children. 
We don't like that message. We don't like that ministry. We don't like that style. So they come over here. We don't like this ministry. We don't like this message. We don't like this style. Now listen, it it would be easy at this point in the sermon to turn around and critique our culture today by, by pointing out how so many in our culture today can be fickle and immature like children when it comes to the message of Christianity. And many in our culture can be like these children. But today I don't want to talk about our culture because to do so would promote self-righteousness in us and cause us to fly under the radar. And that would do us no good. So here's the question for you and I. Do you and I accept the full message of the gospel? Both the bad news and the good news. Do you and I accept the full message of the gospel, both the good news and the bad news? Which, which one are you more comfortable with? A Jesus who loves sinners? You loved last week's story. When Jesus is showing his compassion. But what about a little bit later in Luke's gospel when Jesus, more than anyone else in the whole Bible, will talk about hell in the most horrifying and vivid terms? Will you like that, Jesus? What about a Jesus who eats and drinks with sinners? Who does so in such a way that people accuse him of being a friend of them? Do you like that Jesus who was so comfortable being with the outcasts and the rebellious that people would look at him and say, I think he likes those people. What kind of ministry context are you more comfortable with? Do you prefer the serious and the solemn kind of ministry that speaks about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man as you look at our evangelical culture that has stopped preaching about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man? Are you far more comfortable in a context that's serious? Let's talk about God's holiness. Let's talk about sin. But you're uncomfortable with a church culture that that speaks of grace. And celebrates the goodness of Christ. Listen, what Jesus says in verse 35 to end his address to the crowd. Listen, church, it must not fall on deaf ears today. Listen to how Jesus ended his address to the crowd. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words... Those who are children of God, who belong to the kingdom of God, who are wise, not fickle, they demonstrate how God is both just and the justifier of sinners. That's the point Jesus ends with. He says, I have children. They're not like the children in the marketplace. They demonstrate the wisdom of the kingdom. Here's what they demonstrate because of the message they have received and responded to. That God is just. And he's the justifier. God is just. 
He has every right to punish and condemn us for our sin. And yet, the very one whom we should be rescued from came and rescued us by dying in our place, receiving our condemnation, taking on the wrath that you and I deserved for our sins. Church, this has implications for us as we come together on Sunday mornings and we proclaim this glorious gospel. See, this message that God is just and the justifier, it should cause us to come together on Sunday mornings with both gravity and gladness. Those two words should mark who we are on Sunday morning. We should come together and there should be a gravity like we heard from Hebrews 3. We should come together and be like, man, eternity's at stake this morning. We're talking about the most important truths in the entire universe that have eternal consequences. And our hearts, according to the book of Hebrews, can go astray. We should come in on Sunday mornings and feel the weight of our sin and the temptations of the world. There should be a gravity, but there should be a gladness. We should come in on Sunday mornings and our gravity shouldn't make us somber. It should make us celebrate that Jesus Christ has done for us what we could never do on our own. And as we sang in that hymn earlier, that no one can snatch us out of his hand. And so we come in this morning aware of the seriousness of this message that we proclaim. But we also come in celebrating this glorious message. So church, here's how I want to close this morning. I want to ask you that you put your Bible down and you stand with me. Here's my final point of application. My final point of application is I want to pray for us all in light of those words Jesus said to John. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. I want to pray that no one in this room would be offended by Jesus. That the message of Jesus would not cause us one day to say, yeah, I I don't know about Christianity anymore. If you're aware of the headlines, there, there have been many prominent people, including pastors and Christian artists and Christian authors who in the last five or six years have renounced their faith. So if you think, well, we would never do that. Take heed lest you fall. See, do you know why we close our sermons every Sunday with prayer? It's not just because of the thing we do so that the worship team can come up and it's a transition. You know why we pray? Because God has just spoken to us and what we want to do now is speak to him. And we want to ask him, you have told us things that we cannot do on our own. So Lord, help us. So I want to pray for us now as we close that God 
would use this message and this truth. He would write it on our hearts and he would protect us all from falling away. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, it is not just my heart's desire, it is your heart's desire that all in this room would know you, trust you, love you, and look to you until you take them home. By the power of the Spirit, Lord, may not one person in this room be offended by Jesus. But may we see him as he's revealed in Holy Scripture in all of his glory. And may we not be tempted to move away from him. May we move closer to him and know him more and love him more. Lord, we cannot do that apart from your help. Help us all to not be offended by the Jesus that is the only Jesus who saves. May we not allow our own thoughts, our own perceptions, the cultural influence to tell us who Jesus should be. May you give us eyes to see the Jesus who is, and he's glorious. May he be glorious in our eyes. And may we love him till we finish the race. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.